Papermen meet such interesting... Coming up on the Media Project, Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and me, Rex Smith, with a conversation about what's been going on in the media in recent days. We will analyze media coverage of that Texas school massacre. We're going to talk about the question of children in our media coverage. Are we actually exploiting them? And we'll talk about freedom of information and students covering the news. Join us for those topics and a lot more on the Media Project coming up next. Welcome to the Media Project. I'm Judy Patrick, holding down the fort for a few minutes while we await the arrival of Rex Smith, our host for the day. I'm here today with Alan Shartok. He's the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Yeah, that's and, the one, yeah. and Rosemary Armeo. She is an investigative reporter, wonderful woman to have on the <laughs> She is, and she's tough. You don't get anything by her. So while we await the arrival of Rex, let's talk about the shooting in Texas and how the media has handled it. Have they done a good job? Are there stories they're missing? And how do we continue to cover these kind of events in a meaningful way? I think taking a look at media coverage of mass shootings is a really good idea because we've got, unfortunately, a ton of practice at it. And our coverage has become almost formulaic. We have the breaking news, the shouts in the parking lot as people figure out what's going on. Uh, Then we have information about the shooter. You know the pattern. We've seen it way too often. And it isn't enough anymore. And nobody has really good answers, but some ideas are coming out. What's happening is when you report in the same way all the time, it opens room for conspiracies. And you're already seeing conspiracies about the Texas shooting, very similar to what Mm, we saw at Sandy Hook with people talking about, oh, it's a false flag, it isn't real. Is it something about our coverage that engenders that? Um, No less a personage than the dean of the journalism school at Temple University, who is David Boardman, he's a former Pulitzer Prize winning editor at the Seattle Times, has said, I never thought 10 years ago I'd say something like this, but maybe it's time to start putting pictures of these bodies of dead children, a real shock he's talking about, would that make a difference? And it is horrifying to think of because we know that they're looking at DNA to figure out the identities of these bodies are so mangled. But we have to do something different than we are right now. One answer I think is definitely not to not name the shooters. I don't know where that idea came from, but the idea that somehow we glorify shooters by printing information about them and naming them I think that's just completely misguided. I always disagreed with the idea that we wouldn't name or describe teenage suicides because it led to copycats. There's the fear that same thing, that other young troubled kids would copy this and see glory in the same way. But keeping them quiet didn't stop teen suicide. I can't imagine that it's going to stop teen shooting. Mental health care would take care of that. 
And by the way, Rosemary, speaking of replicable phenomena, we do have Rex Smith, our traditional... (laughs) Am I a replicable phenomenon now? This is very exciting, you know? (laughs) Has checked in to take the moderator's chair away from our wonderful Judy. He's rested it away. Well, uh, (laughs) and there's a question as to whether or not this is just unacceptable. I don't know. We can hear from them. Uh, Which part? The... You know, but there are guidelines. There are ways that we now follow certain procedures in the media in covering suicide. That is, you never write about a suicide without putting in suicide hotline. You yeah, don't re- you don't publish it without right. how to get help and and you don't glorify it. And generally you don't write about suicide unless it's in a very public way, you know, if it causes public attention. That's all phony though. We have all kinds of reasons. It's not phony, that. it helps. It, it is. We have all kinds of exceptions. We don't cover suicide. Well we do oh. if it's someone famous. Oh, well we do if it's really public. Oh, well, we do if a lot of people know about it. Come on. And don't we also have in obituaries certain words which indicate that somebody, for example, committed suicide? Well, we're known to judge. We just saw, you know. Well, that's, yeah, that's intentional, though. Their family wanted us to understand her mental health issues. Naomi. Yeah. Uh, right. Naomi, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I have the wrong dead judge. Uh, sorry. The, uh, <laughs> that's just only Rosemary. Journalist humor that. there. What can you do? <laughs> but but not naming. You know, I think that the media is doing a better job nowadays than it used to in terms of naming the shooters. When Parkland happened, it was such a shock, and everybody wrote about these two teenagers. Now there isn't as much attention. You don't put their pictures on the front page. There is in, you mean Columbine. intention. I'm sorry, the Columbine. Yeah, Columbine. Columbine. Yes. It is more intentional. You really think about it these days when you're deciding how to play a story. Not that you ignore who the shooter is, but you try not to glorify them in effect. Because the copycat issue is real, research suggests. But it isn't the name that leads to the copycat. It's the deed. And what would we do? Not cover the Uh, deed? Not cover the background that led to it? The troubled youth who commit these crimes study past mass shootings, and they look for clues, they look for the weaponry, for their logistics, and that would continue to happen if you use their name or not. In fact, no one even remembers most of the names. What are we to do, though, about the politicians who will parrot the same lines over and over again? For example? Well, for Ted example, Cruz already did. Absolutely. I heard a state legislator from Texas being interviewed in NPR who said, well, we got to not retreat into our red castles and our blue castles. And that's fine. But the difficulty is that, you know, we do have more than 400 million guns in this country. And to not point out that that is potentially the problem, to not focus on that so much is really to ignore the possibility of a solution, isn't there? Yeah, I think Rosemary, who is a wonderful teacher, by the way, and who has given us her insights into this, is every time you try to manipulate the news by either recognizing that something happened or not recognizing that something or using a name or not using a name, you're really playing with fire. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. In some respects, when we cover these mass shootings, we do fall into a rut. And there's the danger with the rut is that you're not expanding the story beyond where it actually can go. School shootings can be far more nuanced. The issue of gun control can be far more nuanced than what we're doing. And what we tend to do is go to Ted Cruz, who will talk about having one entry to the door, to arming teachers, and you go to the right who want to abandon or eliminate assault rifles. And so there's more to the story than that. There's more research than 
that needs to be done. There's more academics to talk to about what inspires people to do it. And in this case, as we record this today, there are a lot about what happened, what went down that day, and how the police responded that needs to be discussed. I'm a little confused. My language abilities aren't as strong as yours. When you use the word nuanced, what do you mean? It's not as simple as gun control. It's how do you control guns? It's not yes or no. There are a lot of things we could do as a society. And there's a lot of things we can do as an industry, the media industry. There's something called solutions journalism, where you look at what happens in other places and how have they effectively solved a problem. And we have a problem. And I think that's what we need to first recognize. There is a problem. We are slaughtering children in schools. We aren't. But I'm, go- I'm going to are. be teaching this topic in school this weekend. So I've looked at the coverage a lot more than I probably normally would. And to my point, more than most people do. They hear about this, they throw up their hands, and their first reaction is, I'm not even going to listen to it. I have several friends who said, no, I don't know what's going on. I'm deliberately not watching it. There's an overload. We have reached overload with our audience. And if you look, there's tons of stuff about gun control. Here's what we could really do. And it's very specific. It's about backgrounding. It's not about, you know, repealing it. It ranges up to, but it isn't simply just about repealing the Second Amendment. There are very nuanced ideas about gun control control that would really make a difference and that no one should object to, even including gun owners in the NRA. So it is out there. I think the media is trying to look for it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But it's beyond the capacity of the media. Correct. It's that more than a thing. media issue. You right. know, we, we journalists tend to think that we have superpowers because this can influence the debate in society, but it seems that it can't. That Well, we get all the blame, so right. it's, it, it seems <laughs> right. like, oh, yeah, we should be able to be the whole fix, and right. we can't. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I agree. Solutions journalists is a wonderful thing and to try to look at it thoroughly, but it does seem to me that notwithstanding all of that, the problem here is political, which is frustrating. Well, so we probably better go on to another topic here as potent and significant as this is for all of our coverage. You know, one of the things that happens, and we talk about this often on the show, when there is an overwhelming story that takes our attention, it takes our attention away from other things. And I just need to point out that one of those topics that we've turned away from, and we've talked about this before on here, is climate commitments. We're six months after the last accord in Glasgow, and nothing has happened internationally, it seems. Six months ago, it was before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was, of course, before what we've just been writing about. It was before inflation came about. The abortion rights issue in the United States have all overshadowed climate change, which I think many of us believe is existential to the planet. I don't know how you overcome that. Well, it's interesting, Rex. We here at our public radio station have a producer, the guy who produces this program, David Gustina, who insists on our morning conversation, which we have every morning, that climate becomes one of the questions that he is going to ask. So when you talk about something as nefarious, if that's the right word, as climate change, it's fascinating that we have the ability to regularly introduce topics that the general public might want to ignore. But kudos to The Guardian, the new- newspaper that did an investigative piece and discovered or has brought to light the fact that so little has been done over the last six months. I mean, in hard numbers, they are pointing out that despite promises and pledges, things have not happened. The excuses are all the things you mentioned, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine. But nonetheless, The Guardian journalists are pointing this out. If it weren't for them, 
we wouldn't be discussing this. I think there's a certain amount of triage going on, not just among the media types who have to marshal resources, but among the reading public. Like last week, I was reeling over Roe v. Wade being overturned. And two years ago, it was George Floyd and ongoing police brutality. And oh, yeah, there's a war. And Israel is shooting reporters and getting away with it. So climate change, I can put off. I've got a wonderful reporter working on a horrific environmental story in Florida. And I don't know how it's going to get attention because I don't have a bunch of dead bodies. Mm -hmm. They can't match Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So climate change is going to get us because we are so distracted, rightly so, by things that have a more immediate impact. Mm -hmm. Alan's solution is to talk about it all the time, to kind of force yourself to talk about it. I don't know that it gets attention. I, what was the topic of a couple of years ago that I decided in the Times Union that we would have a box on the front page every day about this topic until we got through it? And this seemed to be a failed concept because you end up following the story of the day. You have to. You have to. Now, uh, CBS News used to have a box like that on the Dan Rather show where they, they showed what the national debt was. For some reason, they thought that was... Those are the good old days when the national <laughs> debt was <laughs> comprehensible. Oh, we Wasn't had... that Ted Koppel with the Iran hostage situation? Oh, yeah. Day 51 of the Iran hostage. <laughs> right. And it went on for 444 yeah, days yeah. And, and became a show that lasted forever. Well, and it raises the question about Ukraine even. We're three months into the war in Ukraine, and it almost is beginning to recede, isn't it, in news coverage? Remember and Afghanistan, how that just faded away 20 absolutely. years later? Mm -hmm. You could hardly remember. It's because it's the same thing with the mass shootings. It's the same story over and over again. It's a different place, a different number of students, but it's the same story. And similarity is like death to journalism. We can't engage people after that. And the horrors out of Ukraine are just astounding, and they just yeah. keep on coming, and it can be overload, and that is why you will turn to some crazy celebrity trial with Johnny mm. Depp. Mm. Well, <laughs> speaking relief. of which, I mean, that is interesting. I was just going to ask about that, because isn't that the same story that we've heard before? It's just that they're celebrities. It's a toxic relationship, and suddenly this is the top story in terms of digital media. This is what people are turning to. But it's to. American as American can be. We really can't keep our noses out of other people's private lives. I'm glad that it isn't getting a lot of coverage in the local media around the country, but everybody is tuning into it. I guess people make their choices on their own, and we should say in a democratic society that's good. People choose this, but folks are choosing to fill their social media feeds with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and it is actually defeating the old-time approach of news coverage was decided by the elite who owned a press, you know, <laughs> so in this brave new world where everybody can choose whatever they want to see, what they're choosing is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. But isn't it the elite who are running these stations and these newspapers who hold their spittled finger up in the air and say, what is it that we think people either need or want? That's my point. I don't think that the elite are pushing this. I think this is actually consumers showing us what they want. They are going for it on social media. And maybe there is no hope then for moderated media, for edited content. Ultimately, people are just going to go for what they want to go and disregard the rest. Can I say mm -hmm. a word in favor of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard oh, trial? Boy. I, 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 <laughs> I know. can't get enough of it. I have a tendency to always see, well, I look for the reason on why people are interested in this. Like the Kardashians have always fascinated me. And I read everything about the Kardashians. I read everything about Ukraine, too. You can do both if you want to. And there are elements in that story that are really, it's the Me Too movement. 
Amber Heard became a spokesman for the ACLU, speaking out as a domestic abuse victim. And that's what Depp is fighting against. And whether it's fair or not, I mean, I hate both of them. That's part of it. You dislike both of them, and that's part of the fun of it. The celebrity, you know, there's a pirate talking about how, you know, his wife cut off his finger. I mean, this this is a lot more interesting, I'm sorry, than, oh, the world is going to melt in a few decades. So I haven't been following the trial, but leaking into my social media feeds is they're beating up after yeah, her. Yeah, it's awful. It is it's terrible. Awful. It's misogyny. That's why I say it's Me Too, and it goes along with Roe v. Wade. There's a trend in here that we should not hold our nose and say, ooh, this is not a story worthy of us. It's interesting. Oh, I don't know. I think we do have standards. Did you say she cut off his finger? That's what he said. She says no, no. See, I didn't. I I haven't followed it, but I I think we have to have standards and say this stuff does not warrant it. Well, and that's what my point is, that the major media— Yeah, well, you're not covering— Think about a couple years back, remember, there was the story about somebody had cut off somebody's penis. Do you remember that? Oh, uh, my God. 25 years ago. Raina Bobbin. Mm -hmm. Sure, (laughs) we remember her name. Totally remember it. That was quite a story. But you're not, uh, public radio isn't making a big to-do about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, right? Because there are issues that are more important. And I think we owe it to our readers, listeners, viewers. To to decide for them. Yes, to Uh. decide. And they can choose themselves. Well, they are deciding. And they're not listening to radio or TV as much as they're tuning into social media. And that's one of the reasons. And Newspapers 100 years ago did give people what they wanted. That's why there's horoscopes still in newspapers. That's why there's sports. Or as you, Rex always points out, that's why there's a bridge column. The bridge column, yeah. 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 I mean, you, and... you give them some of the dessert so they'll eat the spinach, which is investigative and explanatory journalism. And, we and part of the reason this is, this trial is getting so much interest is the fact that it's televised. It's a courtroom where the testimony is televised, which doesn't always happen. It reminds me of the O.J. Simpson trial. That's right. That's right. So that the places where there is coverage, electronic coverage, that becomes more news than places where it isn't. Just because it's easier for the broadcasters to do, in part. It fills the airwaves of those channels that focus on that kind of thing, and it's available for everybody. Hey, Alan, you're going to like this topic because you have, for years, you ran the Legislative Gazette. That's true. A publication owned by the State University of New York, which gives college credit for students who work on journalism in the state capitol. It turns out that a recent Pew Research Center study... Pew! (laughs) This is just a little sound (laughs) cue here. ...said that a growing number of states now have state capitol reporters who are predominantly students. It's now one in ten nationwide. Mm But in some states, like in Nebraska, for example, by far the majority of reporters covering state government news are students. And I guess that has to do with the fact that state news is what? A place that not enough people pay attention to. And so this is a place where students can get experience and actually get published. Is that what it's about? Well, it may well be. But I want to point out about Nebraska, it is a unique state in many, many ways. Can anybody on the panel name the number one reason that they are always cited as being unique? The unicameral state legislature. That's right, See, Rex. It takes a political scientist to. <laughs> That's right, Rex. <laughs> Somebody as, as boring as Alan Shartok would focus on that. <laughs> well said, Rex. 
<laughs> I thought it would be the Sandhill Cranes out in the western part of the state. That too. That too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the difficulty is we can laud this and say it's terrific the students are doing this coverage in places like Nebraska and Missouri, where there's a wonderful journalism school, University of Missouri. And then we have some of this in New York State, too, where we still do have a pretty vibrant press corps. But the difficulty is that students don't have that capacity yet because they're learning to do the kind of watchdog reporting, the enterprise reporting that digs out stories. They're basically covering press conferences. And mm-hmm. so people are really being shortchanged in those states. Isn't that fair? On the other hand, there's a whole lot of state government that it really just requires stenographic coverage. And there's a, a lot of need for that. Go to a hearing and write down everything people say. Go to a news conference and write down the answers to all the questions. And so the more eyes on all of that, it's great. But it's not a substitute for, remember Arliss Chambers, is that his name? Sure. The guy for Arliss years, Jones. the dean of reporters in the state house. He knew more about state government than even governors at the time. And you have him covering the state government, and that's where you get, well, okay, there was a certain amount of access and, you know, chumminess there. But the insight and the questioning and the accountability, and you're not going to get that from a student no matter how talented. Well, I don't know. You know, there are some students who really excel. You know that more than anybody because you have to read all the papers. <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes, let the record show. Yes, I do know more than anybody else. I've seen the students, and even the best ones are not a match for a professional journalist. Citizen journalists are not matched for professionals. They'll do a good job, but that's not the same as a great job, which is what we require when we're covering state government affects us even more than, than federal. Well, let me fight with you for a moment on this, okay. Rosemary. Don't, don't okay. you think that there are some reporters, particularly in the state houses, who rest on their laurels and who don't really give you new stuff? And that is, of course, one of the problems that becomes rote after a while. Right. That's every beat that happens on every beat. You know, one of the problems with having a student journalist get involved in state government, if they file freedom of information requests, they're going to be out of there before that freedom of information request gets uh, answered because typically can take much longer than a semester, maybe much longer than a college career. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. You can be waiting years for FOIL requests to be fulfilled. And freedom of information for those of us who <laughs> you know may not be familiar with law. The yes, mm-hmm. yeah. the difficulty with the long-time <clears throat> reporters, like the wonderful old now deceased person. Arvis Chalmers or Gus Bliven of the Syracuse Post Standard. The difficulty of these reporters is, as Rosemary alludes to, the chumminess. You get to develop all the insider knowledge in the world. You know who all the sources are, know where the bodies are buried, and you keep the bodies buried. You you know, know, Rex, that is such an insightful comment on your part. The change in just one person in a press corps can really mean that people get along or don't get along or somebody who's there to do nothing but damage. We've seen those in our area. And, you know, the profound influence that one reporter can make covering a state house. And why is it that everybody around this room is nodding and saying, I know exactly who you're talking <laughs> well, about, Alan? And, and at the other end of the spectrum, I think that a college student could come in and breathe a little bit of fresh air into the place by saying, is this really something that people care about? Is this a story I would want to read? And they kind of can upset the apple cart and make you think maybe we are proceeding on this beat with preconceived notions. So I'm going for, back to my years when I first started as a fresh graduate in a newsroom, the Knickerbocker News, that had wonderful veterans in state government. And I, I was questioning their ethics. And why are we covering this story? So the really ideal is a combination of both. 
the old guys who are protecting and the new people saying, why aren't we covering this? And that's exactly what we have lost with the decline of the local news model because all of those oldsters are gone now. They cost too much. And so you have only the babies, the students. So what you've lost is the wisdom and the experience and the guidance. Sorry, enthusiasm isn't enough. Well, and I see just for the outside audience who's listening to the radio, you're sort of nodding your head very disappointedly left to right. I I hate the... We all do. We're all dinosaurs. We've talked about this. And we remember, I don't remember it as the glory days. It was perfect, but it was better than it is now. And a part of that is just the fact that, for example, Rex could speak to this. What used to be a morning newspaper and an afternoon newspaper yeah, aren't anymore. <laughs> now yeah. we just have one newspaper. Well, one or fewer, you know. Yeah. Uh, the sign at the Times Union building where I used to be the editor was modified. It used to say Union Star. That was a yeah. Schenectady paper that died yeah. long ago. Knickerbocker News, afternoon paper, died in 1988. Yeah. The Times Union is digitally quite powerful still. It is the predominant. Sure. But the print version isn't reaching people, and the staff is significantly diminished from what it used to be. Same is true of every news organization I know of. My mother used to bring in a newspaper every day because it had an education section in it. So part of uh, World Telegram and Sun, mm-hmm. which were two newspapers. Which were actually, those yeah. were three papers that yeah. all came into one. So newspapers have been dying forever. You know? Well, the mm-hmm. real lie, though, is that we kept telling our readers, some people still do that, oh, it's economy of scale. Oh, we're cooperating now instead of competing. This is good for you. Oh, the paper's shrinking. It'll be easier for you to hold. And it's all <laughs> a lie. It's all a lie. We told that consistently, like, oh, this is for your own good. No, it was to save money, and the product is not as good. We are so glad that you're with us, because you can get really angry about this. <laughs> I do. Well, I, I, Although it's it my is field. easier to hold. <laughs> that part is true. Yeah. I love going to Europe, and you get, you know, the, the papers broad, that broad are like, oh, wow, I remember this. Right. I, I once had a high school teacher who would tell you about newspapers, and he would tell us about how to fold the newspaper when you were standing up on the subway. Exactly, because it. it was four col- it was eight columns wide, and you could fold it perfectly and have four columns on each side. It's a wonderful thing. So for thing. easier to hold, but twice as long, yeah. I agree with you. It still is less news for more money, and yeah. that's what we lie to our consumers about, there and they, they don't like us for it. That's Rosemary Armeo, investigative <laughs> journalist and reporter. Judy Patrick is here. If you're just joining us, former editor of the Daily Gazette, Alan Shartok, CEO Northeast Public Radio, and I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union. This is the Media Project. Hey, here's an interesting topic. Kellyanne Conway. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So you think this one's worthy. Unlike Johnny Depp, this one's worthy. Well, this is politics and government. No, it's actually a journalism ethical question here. Kellyanne Conway, former communication director at the Trump White House, of course, whose husband, George Conway, is a great Trump critic. Now here's this interesting element of the question. Of course, we have written about this odd marriage, the two sides, the love and hate for Donald Trump. What about their daughter? Kellyanne Conway is now out with a book, a uh, memoir, as all the former Trump people are doing. And she says that at the time that she left the White House, there was coverage of her then 15-year-old daughter who was tweeting about what jerks her parents were. And she says that was unconscionable and unforgivable on the part of the media. Is that fair on her part? No, it's not fair. And on her part, Claudia, I grew to know her name. Some of the things she was tweeting were actually newsworthy when I think we found out that Kellyanne had COVID that way. The other thing is Claudia eventually went on some singing competition show, and the parents were right there. They were trumping up their daughter. 
how did she get on America's Got Talent or The Voice or whatever? She was right out there. A couple of times they tried to rein her in and uh, didn't work. They could have taken her phone away if she was 15. <laughs> they could have. Yeah. I think she has a point, though. When we were doing the coverage, and I have to admit I read every word of it and read her tweets, I kept thinking, we don't make fun of people. We don't hold them up for ridicule. We treat teenagers differently than we do adults, and we didn't obey any of those rules. Now, the fact that her mother is now using her to sell a book is deeply ironic, and I do get it that she's holding herself to a different standard, but I do think she has a point, and I don't think that the Bush kids or the Clinton kids or Barron or anybody, they are children. And they do deserve the protection of the press. And they generally got it right. I mean, Barron, Trump, nobody wrote about it. He wasn't tweeting. Well, uh, yeah, but Rosie O'Donnell was talking about how he was on the scale, that he was autistic, and that that was news right, for a right, while. Seriously, seriously, I agree. But yeah. um, but Claudia was putting herself, the, the daughter was putting herself she's out 15. there. With, she's t- I know, she was tweeting. Tweeting is a powerful medium to ignore. I don't think people made fun of her. I don't think she got bullied by yes, the mainstream press. And you're right. The parents should have acted and taken away. I get that. But because the parents did not parent correctly, the media then can just swoop in on the kid and take advantage. I don't think they swooped in. I think they just made what she said part of their news coverage, which oftentimes it was really interesting. And the criteria for doing that is what? If she gives us insight into what Kellyanne Conway is doing, who was a major advisor to the president at the time. I totally have a problem with this. As soon as the media makes what she tweets uh, part of the national agenda, that's a push on her to do more. We were part of it. It was bad. And that would be where we have to end the show oh, this no. time. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. I had sorry. all this other good stuff here, the papers. Rose, and... Rosemary always gets the last word. <laughs> I just talk a lot. I just Not drown you all out. I'm treasure you. I'm sorry. Oh, well, first word, last word. Here they all are. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. We are grateful to our producer, David Gustena, for his patience in putting this all together. And to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press.